Thanks very much. Great. Well, um, it's nice to be here. Those of you who know me know that I study the media, but the kind of root disciplines I come from are management science, particularly strategy, organization, culture. So um, I've investigated the media industry for about 20 years now, but I'm coming with a different kind of research background. And what that means really by extension, if any of this, if any of the terminology or whatever doesn't make sense, let me know and I'll try and kind of reframe it because it would be nice to, for this to you know, resonate um, with you. And I know you, you will have expertise in, in a different area. Um, what I'm going to do is talk about some research I've been doing for the last 18 months, and I think it'll probably go on for about another 18 months, on legacy media. So that means incumbent established media organizations, challenges in responding properly or efficiently or effectively to this, the massive changes in technology that have been taking place over the last 15 years. So starting with the internet, including um, advent of mobile, um, mobile content, social networking, the kind of the successive waves of changes that have kind of transformed the media world. Um, and what, what I've been very interested in is actually why have established media organisations found it so hard to respond to this. It has been clear what was going to happen, um, but they have resources, they should have been able to do better than they have. That being said, m the majority of organisations facing these kinds of transitions do face enormous challenges, but I really wanted to understand why, what have been the challenges and what has been the role of the people in charge in terms of responding to them. So I thought I'd explain a little bit about the kind of theory behind this, um, give a very short overview of how I've approached the research, and then perhaps most interesting for all of you, um, highlight the issues that have emerged so far. So obviously I'm just halfway through, so this may be not definitive, um, and then look at what kind of conclusions might be arising. So in terms of theory, um, management is a kind of massive, area of theory, and leadership is one very solid chunk of that. Um, it's one of the oldest branches of, the, of management theory. It started in about the 1920s, and there's been, unusually actually, a very clear trajectory in terms of how researchers have tried to study leaders and understand what leaders do. So in the 1920s, researchers very much worked under the assumption that some people are born leaders and the rest of us are not. And what they tried to do is identify what are the traits that mark out people who are born leaders and people who are not. They had problems coming up with a kind of definitive list, and in about the 1940s, people started to try and research leadership according to the skills that went up to the that together comprised the task of leadership. Um, in the 1950s, as psychology took hold psychology began to permeate in leadership theory as well, and people began to look at kind of the role of personality in leadership. So in this kind of middle chunk from the 1940s onwards, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, people were trying to understand leadership through the kind of capabilities and personality of the leaders. In the 1980s, there was kind of a kind of big shift in leadership theory, and the so-called transformational charismatic theories of leadership became dominant. And those are still, if you look at the leadership output from the Harvard Business School Press, um, what's taught on MBAs, they're very much stuck in this area of approaches to leadership. And what's interesting about this is they define leadership as it being about the relationship between a leader and those led. And what is really critical about leadership is the leader's ability to shape the social architecture of the organization, to 
build a particular type of culture to instill a certain type of values. And these are all alternate ways of analyzing leaders. And what's interesting is if one looks at some of the popular analyses of leaders in the media, they tend to conform with different schools of... So Murdoch, if you look at discussions of Murdoch, they're nearly always actually adopting a trait approach, assuming that Murdoch has a kind of inbuilt set of inbuilt skills that that lead him to be so kind of Machiavellianly successful in what he does. Um, John Burt, middle, was Director General of the BBC in the 90s, um, is normally analysed according to his skills and his capabilities and his personality, which was capabilities great, personality, a lot of the analysis suggests it was perhaps not all it could have been. Um, and Greg Dyke, who succeeded John Burt at the BBC, is a classic transformational leader, so much so that uh, a number of books and cases, all award-winning, have been written about him as a kind of prototypical uh, transformational leader. So a transformational leader is someone who gets people to um, achieve extraordinary things by manipulating the social architecture, manipulating their innovation, sorry, not their, their motivation, and so on. Um, an interesting dimension of transformational leader is charismatic leadership, and that's where you include the kind of Jungian shadow side as well. So you don't say leaders are only good, they have a bad side as well. And the classic um, Steve Jobs, his analyses are classic kind of uh, charismatic theories. But I'm not saying that these are alternatives, nor that these are uh, approaches leaders can adopt. These are just different ways of studying leadership. So that was kind of one of the bases I started off with. Um, I also looked a little bit at what we know about leadership during periods of technology change in the media management literature, in the literature on creative industries, and there's a tiny about, tiny bit of coverage. In management theory, there are two very kind of patchy little areas of theory on creative leadership and leadership in the creative industries. Creative leadership doesn't really define if they're talking about the creativity belongs to the leader or the environment, so that's not really very useful. Leadership in the creative industries, that that little body of theory came out of all the policy work on boosting creative industries. Um, in the media management literature, there are a number of themes related to leadership that surface. One is newsroom leadership. That surfaces quite a lot in discussions of converging newsrooms. And in the 80s, there was a lot on the media mobile. And actually, interesting for this research, it's not really a leadership concept, but in all of the management theory, kind of in related fields, there is this light motive of attention between suits and creatives, which clearly has a leadership dimension. So for the research, what I wanted to do is um, firstly try and essentially find out what went wrong for legacy media firms in recent years through the perspective of leadership. So how did leaders perceive those changes? What role did they play? And then trying to project forward, develop a sense of what skills a leader needs to successfully navigate technology transitions. Um, I've done about 32 interviews to date, and as you'll see, it's a really unbalanced sample. Um, these are very difficult interviews to get, actually. The more significant and well-known the leader, the harder it is to get to them. Um, there are other problems. You really feel convergence in, in action. So for example, there's no one there really uh, from the music industry. There's one individual, but he's not really a a leader, perhaps, to the extent of the other people I've interviewed, but 
the music industry in Europe is massively consolidated now. There's basically one individual to talk to, and it's very, it's very hard to get hold of him. Um, uh, movies, there are really no kind of classic movie industry CEOs in Europe now. So that, there are then budget issues. I need to get to Hollywood. I need to get access, but I also need to get to Hollywood. I put in gaming because gaming is a sector of the media industry that we don't tend to give much attention to. But it's an extremely successful, technologically-based, booming area of the industry, and I was interested in that. And under advisory, I've got, um, I also talked to a couple of partners from big consultants who do media, um, and um, one of the leading investment analysts who studies media, because I was curious how they perceive leaders. And I started off with a set of very dry interview questions driven by the theory. And about halfway through the second interview, I realized that these were, you know, I was getting just blank looks. So what I then had to do was kind of completely, these are kind of questions 2.0. Um, I had to really phrase them in a way that they kind of resonated with the leaders. And there's quite, they're issue-focused long interviews. So I have questions I want to hit, issues I want to hit, but I kind of approach them from a number of different directions. Of these, the questions that have really generated the kind of richest response have been retrospectively, you know, what decisions did you get wrong? The second one, what keeps you awake at night, looking back at your previous leadership roles? Um, an interesting stream of research has been the role of consultants within media organizations, especially in areas of strategy and organizational change. Um, this issue of if a leader needs to be a creative hero or not. Um, to what extent do they need to have creative or journalistic skills for credibility? Um, okay, so moving on a bit, what we'll do is look at some of the issues that have emerged, and what I thought I'd look at is a kind of overview of consensus on what's been going wrong, uh, look at how they see strategy developing, and issues around creativity and innovation. Um, this is a Wordle, which I just use partly as a kind of fun technique for, for analysis, but I did put in all of the answers to particular questions to see what kind of themes emerged. And what you see popping up are kind of, uh, I think, what one would expect. You know, the issues around technology, the difficulties of change, digital technology. People and think are important because it emerged a lot of the challenges around mindset, difficulties in grasping, how significantly media was changing, and most significantly grasping that in time, because this is very this is, it is very time sensitive. If you look at some of the organizations that basically have the right strategies now, the problem is they needed them about five years ago. They needed to be cutting their fixed costs about five years ago. Um, so it's, it's to do with making that cognitive shift at the right time, and arguably that's the leader's job. <coughs> If you kind of cluster what was really going on, there were two, seems to be two areas that really derail legacy media. The first was the speed and the complexity of change in the strategic environment, especially technological change. And there was, you know, if you just think back, I was writing something yesterday, just going through, you know, web one, web two, and looking at, you know, double click, AdSense, all of these developments happening. There were a lot of them, and it was very, very hard to work out which were going to be significant. And once they were significant, you know, what was the totality of their, what would the totality of their effect be on this organization? Um, and the second block was 
what I've kind of put under the buzzword of legacy phenomena. That's really inertia. And these are bits about the existing organization that stopped it being able to change or compete as new organizations could. I mean, if you look at in the new media space, in just about all of the new markets that have emerged, it's a new player who dominates it, Twitter, Google, Facebook. And because they, they're not burdened by existing buildings, existing legacy assets. Um, I mean, the legacy phenomena move in a spectrum from very, very tangible, you know, fleets of delivery trucks, printing presses, expensive headquarters in high-rent areas, to processes um, about how editorial processes are approached, um, processes within organization for authorizing investment in new areas or experimenting, the wrong type of skills, and the wrong kind of mindset. So here are some quotes. Um, this is a quote from a CEO in print media, um, referring to, so he's saying, you've probably got a team which is expert in managing the traditional cash cow, but they don't have the skills and experience to work in the new digital world. And no one wants to be told that they're the past. And you know, when the machine was switched off, he said, you know, you get to the point where someone who you've gone to the pub with every week for years, you've had dinner with regularly, you go on holiday together, good friend, you need to say, I'm sorry, you don't fit anymore. You know, you don't have the right skills. This, you know, the world is moving on. So big actual personal challenge for leaders in terms of even the ones who understood the change, they had terrible problems implementing the kind of changes they need to make. And one of the, one of the developments that I'm not really referring to here, but you see a big rise in the use of coaches. And a lot of the coach, coaches were helping people handle those kinds of um, conversations that needed to take place. Um, I tried to probe and find out where the mental blocks were coming from, because you know the people who are running these organizations are very, very bright and have access to extremely good advisors and good teams around them. And a lot of it, it just felt counterintuitive, it felt. So a lot of the people at the top had lived through a 20-year monster boom and were quite resistant to the idea that the whole thing might be coming to an end. And then a lot of them would also say, well, you know, there was a terrible temptation to say, look, I've got a few years till I, reti till I retire, and maybe we can just sit this out and the next lot can try and sort out all of this. Um, and there was also a big problem around the fact that the press and broadcast media were still doing quite well. So it was, a hard to, it was hard to create a sense of urgency. If you look at the theories on, on you know, significant change, you need to have a common sense of urgency inside the organizations, and there wasn't one. But those who could see far into the future kind of knew what, what was ahead. Um, this quote interested me um, because a lot of the discourse around this tends to focus on you know, journalists being resistant to change or managers being resistant to change, but it emerged that there was resistance also in the financial community. It was, they also didn't really grasp the type, you know, the people that own shares in media companies, the pension funds, etc., didn't really understand what the media needed to be doing now to prepare themselves for the future. So this is a quote from the CEO who run a couple of publicly listed media companies. It's very difficult for existing organizations to take on the new world. If you're a public company, you've got to destroy profitability, you've got to invest vastly more of your money, you've got to stop giving dividends, and you don't get forgiven for those things. And most CEOs of public companies are on three-year contracts, and you know, they're paid 
in response for meeting a set of targets, and a lot of these targets are around share price. So this actually appears to have been quite a big block for, for legacy media. In terms of biggest mistake, this is also from print media. And this was a refrain I got a lot. I always said that if I could go back 10 years, I would not be saying the internet's going to be big. What I'd be saying, really be saying, is your business is going to be more screwed than you can ever conceive of now. Your worst case scenario is just a scratch. And this was, this was quite a common response. Our worst case scenarios weren't bad enough. Um, moving on to strategy, which is an area I've done a lot of work in. Um, I got very frustrated with the responses on strategy. They were very inconclusive, but I realized in the end that actually was the finding. Um, and it seems to be that there was quite a kind of strategic vacuum in the last 10 years. So these were kind of typical problems. It didn't feel like a strategy at the time. If we look back, we can see a kind of pattern in our stream of activities, but it didn't feel like a strategy at the time. Very opportunistic. We responded to opportunities as they came up defined by many individual projects, constant firefighting, rebuilding the aeroplane mid-fright, a lot of money wasted on digital strategies. Now that looks very surprising, but what people meant by that was that often the response was to set up a little new unit doing something digital, and the rest of the organization did exactly what it had always been doing. And what, where they, what they should have been doing is kind of digitizing the core business. Um, and they said that these digital strategies were very expensive little excursions that really missed the point of what should have been going on. Um, this is a quote from one of my kind of gold star interviewees who has been CEO across a lot of different sectors of the media industry and also started off life in McKinsey, so he's very analytical. Um, and this is a fantastic summary of actually strategy in various sectors of the media in recent years. So in the 80s and 90s, strategy was very clear. For most newspaper companies, it was a roll-up strategy, consolidating to get economies of scale. In television, it was about moving into a multi-channel environment, so all the niche channels, uh, the long tail. And in the magazine industry, it was about sharper and sharper segmentation. Since 2000, it's been very hard. No one can put up their hand and say, we've had a brilliant strategy and got it right. Um, the one common element has been cost-cutting. Uh, this has been 100% across all of the active CEOs. Um, it's on, and it feels to me there's a lot of research to be done in intelligent cost-cutting, actually. Um, unfortunately, cost-cutting, cost-reduction early on makes you fitter quicker. It's a horrible fact that if you go deeper quicker, you're in a better state because of this process whereby things get worse and worse. Um, if we kind of analyze this, strategy is a much messier area of theory than leadership. And really, this is quite an interesting way of um, dividing the field up. And these are really three dimensions or schools of strategy. The first is the kind of rational approaches to strategy. And these are approaches to strategy that you do on an MBA, that McKinsey and the big consultants do. And it really sees strategy as a kind of planning exercise. You, you analyze what's going on, and you you then develop a plan, develop a strategy that's implemented. That area of strategy was hard, was actually basically impossible because that approach to strategy is based on doing the environmental analysis and the environmental analysis was actually changing too fast to analyze and there was no data. Um, adaptive approaches to strategy are strategy approaches that look at helping the organization adapt to the environment and 
Those are approaches to strategy that look at restructuring, changing systems, changing resources. And what we see there is that the legacy phenomena were stopping strategy at that level as well. And interpretive areas of uh, strategy look at you know, um, strategy from the perspective of how it's perceived inside the organization and culture. And there we see that the legacy kind of mindsets made the import of changes difficult to accept. So if we look at what was going on well, the strategy, essentially, the strategy had come down to frequent reorganizing, retooling, cost-cutting, lots of small projects, supported by consultants. There seems to be actually a fascinating, if you're in the field of strategy, absence of classic strategy making. And lots of culture change initiatives supported by coaches. Um, so that's actually quite a big shift in terms of how these organizations are managed, in fact. In terms of creativity and innovation, um, here it was a completely different picture. Uh, it, was, it felt like the CEOs and leaders I interviewed had this pretty much under control. Um, they had a very clear consensus on what needs to be done to promote creativity. Um, essentially, and this complete, what's interesting, a little slide on this in a minute, but it completely matched theories of how to promote creativity, which is kind of unusual. Um, so they understood the importance of small group autonomy. You leave a small, diverse group with the necessary expertise together and leave them to solve the problem. Um, ring fencing, so to kind of shield them from bureaucracy, to let them know they can experiment, and they can fail, the leader will take the rap, they're not going to be exposed. And kind of boundaries, so very clear feedback. This is a good creative idea, this is a bad creative idea. And again, I don't know how many of you have read all the literature on you know, the Google approach to strategy and innovation. You know, this, kind of, um, this seems to have really, really been absorbed by the legacy media. Um, and there is a clear shift towards faster, cheaper experimentation. Um, and this is a quote from a CEO of a magazine group that was the first one where digital revenues outstrip print revenues. Um, uh, so our implementation strategy is do and learn. Try and do it fast, try and do it cheap, try and do it quietly. Chuck it out, learn. As long as you learn from your mistakes it's, or failures, it's on the training budget and that's fine. So quite a, a, a new approach, which is very much the Google approach. You know, Google releases things in better version and if they, if they, if they um, fly, that's great. And if they don't, they're kind of quietly forgotten. So these are just, this is a little check back to theory. This is, this is the theory on what you need to push up in, intrinsic motivation in organizations, which results in higher levels of creativity. And, and what interested me is they all seem to be there, and the leaders seem to be very cognizant of what they need to do to push creativity. Um, pulling together this section, the kind of picture of CEO priorities in terms of managing legacy transitions. There is a picture that's beginning to emerge. Concerning strategy, it seems that these processes need to be speeded up and merged with execution. So the split between developing the plan and implementing the pl plan. You need to develop the plan, try out a bit, go back and revise it. Use data, you know, the kind of data that, that comes from the online environment to, to nuance your strategy more. Innovate fast and as cheaply as possible and try not to make failure a big deal, which is a cultural shift. Get to grips with technology. It's becoming a very big issue. 
and flatten and simplify the organization to make sure that good ideas can get to the right ears. It seem, one of the findings seems to be that some of the best ideas in media organizations today are in the peripheries of the organization. Um, the younger people, the freelancers, it's no longer the case that the people in the boardroom have the greatest knowledge and the greatest expertise. Actually, the best ideas are layered out and the CEO needs to make sure that those ideas can flow up. In terms of interim findings or conclusions, um, leadership's theory, there's a lot, there are a lot of challenges around definitions, boundaries, and whether it's relevant. So surprisingly, when you read the theory, they seldom define who they mean by the leader. Some of it you can work out, they're talking about anyone who's responsible for two people. Some of them are talking about you know, CEOs and multinationals. There is a very big difference between different leadership roles. You know, the chairman and CEO and the non-executive director, these are different roles, and they're often bundled together. And John and uh, David were talking over lunch about some of the issues of the BBC at the moment. And, and you know, if you look at Chris Batten and John um, Entwistle, very different roles. Um, there is no connection between research on governance and research on leadership, which I find very surprising. And perhaps the biggest finding, that what people researching leadership and writing about it are concerned with, and what the industry is concerned with, seem very different. So if you look, as I said, theory and business schools and, uh, are very concerned with the right end side of things. All the books and the research is really, at the moment, looking at transformational charismatic approaches. But the industry is really very into the hard skills. So there is, uh, there is a kind of dissonance there. And the type of skills that seem to be emerging as very important are cognitive ability. You know, old, you need a big brain. <laughs> Complexity reduction. Um, the ability to manage complex systems. You know, understand the emerging value chain. What role will Amazon, Apple, Google play in this system? And, you know, what are their scenarios? And where is that going to affect us? Where do we need to posi be positioning ourselves? The ability to manage stakeholder expectations, to understand you know, what do regulators want, what do shareholders want, what do the trust want, um, what do our key customers want, is that feasible, you know, how do we manage that. An ability with risk. Um, one of the things that's interesting in the media is now the biggest investments they're making are in the field of IT now. Actually most media companies are now essentially IT companies under another name. And there are big issues about what you, what, when you invest, how much you invest, when you jump in. Um, content is getting much more expensive. Um, so, you know, this is one of Rupert Murdoch's great skills. He's a fantastic risk taker, and he's been doing it so long. What is a risk to most of us is not a risk to him. He's got so much expertise to pull on. Um, cost cutting, reflectivity, the ability to learn from mistakes, how how well do you learn, and warmth and charisma. But what is interesting is when I talk to these leaders, that while theory is talking about managing down into the organization, they're concerned with managing up and out, managing the external world. And that was quite a big dissonance, and I realized that was really the cause of the problems I had with the first set of interview questions, that they were based on the theory and, and it was different to the experience of the leaders. Um, the one skill that's really, really critical is, is technology. And, I mean, it seems to me that for a long time, the people that led media organizations had fantastic competencies in content, 
plus a kind of visceral understanding of the dynamics of the business. And they combined these two elements, and that was what brought them to the top of the organization. But now it seems that a third leg is coming in. They also need to understand technology trajectories. They don't need to be able to write code, or, uh, but they do need to understand where the story is going with technology and what that means. Um, media management theory, I also have had problems working with. Um, what is really difficult is even doing research for the media industry that there are the, the situation of say gaming vis-a-vis -vis newspapers is so different it's very hard to really develop any theory that applies equally to both so i i have problems with this construct of the media industry um the theory doesn't really acknowledge the differences in types of organization you know if you're a family-owned business if you're a small business, it's very different to being a public service organization to being a multinational. And these are very significant differences for management theory, but they're not often addressed in media management theory. This whole area of what's the media industry, what's the creative industry is a problem. I don't know if I've written a book for the creative industries or the media industries. I mean, they're, they're, they're not clearly defined. And this is hard, actually, for kind of theory building. Um, it seems to be that criteria that are very important for analyzing media organizations and looking at how they should be run is, is ownership, essentially privately or publicly held. And for leadership, what that means is, is the leader a hired gun, working to a three-year contract with very clear um, deliverable targets, or are they owner? If they're the owner, they have a completely different relationship with, with what that organization does. And the degree of protection from market forces, and that has a number of dimensions. So if you are protected from market forces, and that could be, say, Pixar owned by Disney, it could be HBO with subscription funding or the BBC, you have a much greater ability to experiment and let audiences grow than if you're, if you're held to short-term results. You have a much greater freedom to invest in long-term projects and assets. Uh, and the other issue is if you're required to meet societal as well as commercial goals. Um, where am I? Just sit, I've finished the first round of interviews, transcribed two-thirds of them, done some preliminary conclusions in the proposal, and there's three new themes that have emerged. Newsroom leadership, governance and leadership, oh, for strategy and leadership, and cost-cutting. So that's where I am now. <laughs> Thank you.